Hello and welcome to the Friday, May 13th, 2022 edition of On Iowa Politics. This week, the Democratic primary, my attorney general, and still the legislature. Hi, I'm James Lynch of the Cedar Rapids Gazette, and with me today are Sarah Watson of the Quad City Times. Good morning, Sarah. Good morning. Jared McNett of the Sioux City Journal. Good morning, Jared. Good morning, James. The uh, word of the day is haboob. <laughs> and the definition is? Uh, that was the storm uh, we supposedly got uh, blowing through here last night. A very right. rare type of right. uh, windstorm. A haboob. Mm-hmm. All right. Then we're not referring to Aaron Murphy, State House Bureau Chief <laughs> for the Gazette. Good morning, Aaron. <laughs> no, I'm usually described in much more vulgar terms. Good morning, James. <laughs> And Gazette Opinion Editor, Todd Dorman, fresh from the litter box. Good morning, Todd. Uh, good morning. And, uh, yeah, I don't even know what to say about that. <laughs> <laughs> Meow? You and your, fur- your furries. <laughs> yeah. yeah. There's a rumor going around, I guess. <laughs> Speaking of rumors, uh, let's talk about the Senate primary. We're less than 25 days from the Iowa Democrat, Iowa Democrats U.S. Senate primary election. Contain your excitement. <laughs> but in fact, there is some excitement in what was once thought to be a coronation. Former U.S. Rep. Abby Finkenauer may be the odds on favorite, but Michael Franken, at least at the moment, appears to be rich strike as we're heading down the home stretch. Aaron, you, you're previewing this race for this weekend for the Gazette and Lee newspapers. Is this turning into a race? And what's the choice for Iowa Democrats in this primary? Um, I I think you have to say it is just based on the limited metrics that we have. So it's it's tough. Um, Pollsters don't like getting into congressional races in general. They even like getting into a primary race, even less so. So we don't have any really good polling. There's been one or two internal polls, and um, those are um, about as worth worth about as much as uh the kitty litter in in our iowa schools um so so we don't have any of that to go on um so what we do have is fundraising numbers and and mike franken has been competitive there in fact while abby finkenauer has raised the most over the campaign mike franken actually had the better first quarter of 2022 here um the Franken campaign is the first on TV. He's uh, two ads in now, um, so he's the only uh, candidate on TV uh, so far. Um, and he's got a decent amount of endorsements, and and from you know, and and and, and we've probably said a billion times on this um, podcast that endorsements don't mean a whole lot as far as swaying voters, but but what they do at least show is whether uh, people out there are willing to put their name, you know, behind a, a candidate. And, and, and there's ample evidence now that there are, are any number of Iowa Democrats who are, have been willing to express um, their support for Mike Franken, including some who, who served with a- Abby Finkenauer in the state house. Now, Abby Finkenauer has more than, you know, the sufficient number of endorsements as well. So the point being to circle all the way back to your original question is, is yes, I think, I think it's, it's fair to say based on what we know that, that there is a competitive race happening right now, how close is it or you know, or who's actually in head this or that, I, I have no idea. And it's really hard to tell. Um, the one thing I will say, and I'm, I'm just getting a chance to get out and do this kind of stuff. Now that the legislature is ground to halt um, 
Um, I, I went to an, a Mike Franken event this past week in Winterset, um, not exactly a democratic, you know, stronghold. Um, and, um, there was about 30 to 40 people there, um, in a little, uh, hotel conference room just to hear Mike Franken. So, um, that's, that's, that's not nothing. you know, it's, it's, it's not Obama in 2008, uh, <laughs> size, but, uh, you know, that, that's not, that's not a, it, you know, that's a decent number for a primary campaign in in a non-democratic stronghold. And, um, I'll be interested here, Jer- Jared, I think he was either, you got one coming up soon with yep. your admiral in your got, area. Uh, got one on Saturday that I'm going to for Franken. And then, uh, one on uh, Monday that uh, Jim Carlin's actually having in uh, Sergeant Bluff, so I'm getting both of the Western. Oh, there, Iowa there you ways. go. Yeah, uh, so it'll be interesting to see how how many people come out to see him in Western Iowa too. Um, I think the choice was the other part of your question um, is um, you know Abby Finkenauer um, is is talking about the contrast that she would be able to uh, portray between herself and Chuck Grassley and. Some of those are pretty easy to see just when you <laughs> stand those two next to each other. Um, uh, and and Mike Franken uh, really seems to be leaning into the idea that um, he can be the general election candidate that is not only um, a candidate that Democrats like, but can maybe even appeal to middle of the road and even some disenfranchised uh, Republican voters. That, that that seems to be the, um, the top line um, anyways. Um, uh, pitches that those two candidates are making. Uh, Todd, uh, as Aaron mentioned, that we, we've sometimes talked about how much endorsements are worth, but Franken has landed a couple of impressive, I think, endorsements in recent weeks. First, um, former Iowa Attorney General Bonnie Campbell announced her support for Franken, and next, Richard Bender, a longtime aide to retired Senator Tom Harkin, endorsed Franken. Are these the, the serious people endorsements he needs? Uh, to show that he belongs in this race and, and has the bona fides to to be a U.S. senator. Well, Bender has uh, Richard Bender has you know been involved in a, in a lot of elections. I think he had an op-ed in the Gazette last Sunday where he talked about. I think it's he's been in twenty election cycles, so you know he's he's somebody that understands what it takes to to win in Iowa. Although you know, of course. Iowa has changed politically quite a bit in the last last uh, decade, uh, but I I think that what it most of these endorsements are coming from sort of a, a a slice of the party that believes that Franken's with Franken with his credentials uh, and message has the best chance of of beating Chuck Grassley in November. They see him as the the best general election candidate. Uh, they're not necessarily, I haven't heard any of them necessarily say that they think there's anything wrong with Abby Finkenauer. It's just that they believe, you know, a a retired admiral from, you know, a native of Northwest Iowa, uh, is, is, is gonna, you know, be able to reach some voters that maybe Abby Finkenauer, uh, who's, you know, considered, considered maybe more, maybe to Franken's left, uh, he'll be able to appeal to voters that she wouldn't be able to. So I think that's, that's, if there's a silver lining in those endorsements, it's that there is this sort of growing number of Democrats who seem to think he's got the best chance of actually taking the Senate seat beyond, you know, winning the primary. 
And and to that point, and I, before we move on, I should note here, um, we shouldn't forget that there's a third candidate in this race, and I, I think safe to say is the is the underdog in this one to the other two. But Glenn Hurst, who is a, a physician from Minden, and and uh, in the fastest way to describe him is essentially running in the Bernie Sanders lane. He describes himself as the most progressive. But to that point, I mean, it's it is interesting to hear him talk about and and when i say you know i'm not describing him that way that's how he describes himself he's the you know the medicare for all the green new deal type of candidate um he he is of the belief that uh and and he says this i'll I'll give away a little bit uh uh, of of the cow here if you guys all if all the listeners promise to come back and read my story and read the rest of it this weekend (laughs) um he says uh, you know, hey, the Iowa Democrats for the last 10 years have been putting up that centrist, middle of the road, moderate Democratic candidate. And, and we've been getting our rear ends handed to us. And, and he, his argument is we should be putting out the bold progressive candidate. And, and knowing his audience, he, he, he says that the last true progressive candidate that Iowa Democrats had was Tom Harkin, who that's a that's a feel good name uh, for Iowa Democrats. So probably not an accident that that's the one that Glenn Hurst is evoking when he, he talks about his campaign and the type of candidate that he thinks they need to be running. Wow, Aaron, you, you just uh, kind of gave me a, a, a sort of a flashback when you mentioned the Green New Deal. I don't think I've heard anybody talk about the Green New Deal in months. Uh, <laughs> It seems to have been lost in, in other issues. but uh, Glenn Hurst is bringing it back. All right. Okay. <laughs> Todd, uh, especially in Bender's case, when we're talking about these endorsements, will that uh, tell us whether uh, Senator Harkin endorsement, even once removed, is worth, you know, what it's worth in a Democratic primary? Uh, does Tommy bah- Bahama still have some juice here? Well, you know, mentioning Tommy Bahama and juice reminds me that I'd, <laughs> I'd rather be on a beach right now than on this podcast. No offense to anyone here, but it's just <laughs> the, take the it. juice in the Bahamas. Yeah. We're, what were we talking about? Um, <laughs> you know, yeah, I, I, I think his endorsement would carry some weight, whether he weighs in or not. I, I, I don't know. He's, you know, he's considered a legendary figure among a lot of Democrats, especially older Democrats that were around for, all the time that he was in the Senate uh, and, you know, had some great accomplishments, but uh, you know, I don't, I, I think, I think, you know, if Glenn Hurst got Harkin's endorsement, that would be something, <laughs> I mean, you know, because mm-hmm. he, I, I don't know, other than the citizens for community improvement, I'm not sure who all is on, is backing him. They actually got a couple mailers for Glenn Hurst that were paid for by, CCI. So, um, yeah, I, I, I think Tommy Bahama still has some juice and, uh, I wish I was on the beach to, to, to ask you, yeah, I mean, I, I'll, I'll volunteer to fly down if he's, if he's there to sort of seek his, spend some time on, on his sailboat asking. Yeah. Him. Or maybe he's on that, that Arctic boat. Um, few years ago that sailing around the Arctic circle or whatever. So that that's always the key. You just got to pitch it as like, you know, an article or a column or whatever, and then just expense the hell out of it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All inclusive reporting is always, always nice. Exactly. 
I'll defer to our Gen Z panel members, Jared and Sarah. Do the Campbell and Bender endorsements, uh, how shall we say this politely, simply reinforce Franken as an old guy with lots of experience compared to that scrappy millennial he's running against? Are these endorsements likely to get younger voters to the polls, uh, especially in a, a primary where younger voters tend not to go? Jared? Uh, well, first, I, I will say I uh, I am technically not a, a Gen Zer. Oh, I'm, uh, sorry, I'm, I didn't mean to offend you. I know, I know <laughs> my uh, my youthful uh, my youthful visage might make you think, oh yeah, that's a that's a young uh, up and comer, but uh, not so. Um, I I don't know that those are necessarily the kinds of names that are meant to get young people hype. Like those are the kind of endorsements you tout to try and convey to, you know, older, more settled and kind of established folks that this is a serious, well-respected sort of campaign that have experienced people uh, that are backing it. And um, kind of circling back to what a little of what Aaron and Todd were saying, I do wonder how much of like the 18 to like 30 year old demographic will a turn out in the democratic primary and B um, how that might actually help or hurt uh, Glenn Hurst, um, because, you know, he's gotten endorsements from groups like Iowa CCI, which backed Bernie ahead of 2020. And of course, in 2020, you know, 18 to 30 year olds and 30 to 45 year olds broke really, really big uh, for Sanders. So like maybe those sorts of cosigns might get young people out and help someone. Um, but I don't think these other kinds of endorsements are the ones that people under a certain age are going to care too much about. Sarah, are you a Gen Zer? I think so. I think I'm like right on the cusp, but I okay. think I think I could be classified as a Gen Zer. But so, so you can I speak still with authority. I still played with a, a light bright as a kid, so. <laughs> I'm like right on the cusp, but, um, but yeah, I would just say, you know, honest, like to be completely honest, I had to look up, um, the names, um, you know, Bonnie Campbell and Richard Bender. Um, I hadn't heard their names before we, before you emailed out, um, what we were going to be talking about. And so, and, you know, and I've been reporting on politics as part of the, uh, the daily Iowan for a few years. And so if those, you know, if I'm haven't been hearing those names, I don't know that, you know, your average uh, 18 to 24 year old is probably going to recognize those names unless they've been really, really active in politics or their parents have been really, really active in politics. Um, and then, yeah, just going back to the uh, the number of young voters who turn out um, looking at the 2020 election it uh, in for Democrats, it looks like like 58% of 65 and older uh, Democratic primary voters turned out and 21% of like 18 to 24 year olds turned out, which um, so so I mean, that just also shows uh, like the number of voters. So like, yeah, the 65 and older, it was like 126,000 voters and uh, Democratic primary voters. And then the 18 to 24 year old, there are 14,000. So, I mean, if that just goes to show too, that like who kind of has the voting power in the democratic primary, at least in this 2020 election, if that, if that holds true here for this off uh, election year or off general election year or off presidential election year. Midterm. 
Yeah. Midterm. Yes, that is the I, word. <laughs> I played with uh, I played with lawn darts. How old is that? How old does that make me? <laughs> and and you're still alive to tell the tale. That's the more important part. There. Yeah, I was going to say, Sarah, I have no idea what a light bright is, but that that's another uh, podcast, I guess. Light bright, um, making things with but, light. Okay, all right. Uh, <laughs> oh, oh, you're muted, Sarah. <laughs> Maybe I am a little older than I thought. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> But it's this black screen. You put in little clear glass like pegs, and then um, there's a light behind this black thing, and, and it glows. And anyway, it was a big '90s kids thing. Okay, all right, fair I'm enough. Um, Come on, boomer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay, boomer. <laughs> yeah, that's me. Uh, Sarah, Abby Finkenauer doesn't seem to be talking about Franken or Hearst at all, from what I can tell. But the contrast she draws with Grassley, he's too old, he's too out of touch, et cetera. Doesn't that some of doesn't some of that apply to Franken as well? I think it definitely could. Um and you know, I mean, I think Abby Finkenara has really painted Chuck Grassley as um somebody who's been in the Senate for decades and decades, somebody who's been in Washington. I mean, he's um and so Mike Franken isn't quite to the age that Chuck Grassley is and hasn't um, served in public office for obviously as long as Grassley has. So, you know, it's a little bit different. Um, Mike Franken's a little bit younger. So um, but that could be it. Like like you said, Abby Finkner hasn't really talked about Mike Franken quite as much. But um, but maybe we'll see that more play out uh, leading up to the June primary. And I could I could see what you're you're saying James there is you know these focused criticisms of Chuck Grassley and his age and how long he's been around government and oh if that happens to also lessen your view of Mike Franken you know incidentally well then you know so be it (laughs) there could there could be so I mean look regardless of whether that's an ulterior motive or not that's clearly the the path she's taken with this campaign she says it every time and she talks uh at events um when they had the first event last weekend or i'm sorry the first debate last weekend um i believe she said chuck grassley's been in the senate for 47 years uh 47 times if i I counted right so he's been there too dang long for (laughs) for the record Mike Franken is 64, so he's 24 years younger than Chuck Grassley. Oh, he, he could yeah. be Chuck Grassley's son. He could be. He could be. So, Ooh. wow. You heard it. Yeah. Relative. It, it occurred matter. to me. I don't know how old Mike Franken is, so I want yeah. to check. Okay, Aaron, coming back to you because you covered that debate you just mentioned uh, between these three candidates: Finkenauer, Hurst, and Franken. Um, and we'll be part of the panel grilling them May 19th during an Iowa PBS debate. Did the first debate help or hurt anyone? Did we learn anything about these candidates that we, we didn't know? And I guess what's at stake in this second debate? Yeah, I don't know. I, it wasn't a debate that I came away from feeling like, whoa, th- th- this really changed um, the landscape for any of the three of them. Um, 
and that's not uncommon for especially for a first debate and especially in a primary race and, and it you know it's 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 a lot of ways introductory there were some nuances um and some interesting differences on like into the weeds on ethanol policy and uh on ukraine where um abby finkenauer and glenn hurst both kind of towed the no troops line whereas mike franken who obviously speaks with some authority as, as a three-star U.S. Navy admiral, um, did draw a red line and talked about, look, if they use nuclear weapons, then we're going to have to very seriously think about. Um, so this is, so there were there were little moments where if you were uh, an Iowa Democrat that really is torn between these candidates and you're looking for something to give you a little bit of daylight, there, there, were, there were small moments in there um, that you could maybe been influenced by but but nothing that you know anybody walked away from going oh my gosh i really hit it out of the park or oh my gosh i really stepped in it and and, and then sorry for the second debate so i i guess the thing about the debates to me is always i'm more interested to see how the candidates um kind of conduct themselves because that tells me where they feel they are in the race you know if, if they're very safe and and muted and and um um, then, then you, you feel like they probably feel like they're in a pretty good position. If they come out on the attack and they really go after one of the other candidates on stage, they probably feel like they need to do that to make up some ground. So, um, and the Iowa press debate will be much more uh, free flowing uh, than the first one, which was very. It was one of those regimented. Everybody's got thirty seconds, sixty seconds, boom, boom, boom. Uh, where the Iowa press debates are much more like a conversation. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out um, as well. All right, moving right along here. Um, Aaron, I've heard a rumor that things are so slow at the Capitol these days that the GOP-controlled Senate is letting reporters into the chamber. Uh, <laughs> any truth to that? And they need people enough people to play uh, four-handed you know, four cards. And... <laughs> if Euchre gets us back on, if Euchre with Jack Whitford gets us back on the Senate press row, I'll do it happily. <laughs> okay. Um, any truth to the rumor that the legislature has secretly adjourned and won't be coming back at all? <laughs> oh, dare to dream, right? <laughs> Don't dangle the dream and then take it away. No, I mean, if anything, we're starting to hear a little more groundswell that and and this is just what we're hearing there uh, please take this for what it's worth this isn't you know word of god but we're starting to hear more and more that they're going to wait until after the primary election to finish it up um just just stay home stay in their corners let the primary play out and then um finish up whatever uh from there so so yeah no that nothing on the imminent horizon so a after the primary, they can come back and listen to more retirement speeches. Oh, God help us. Which is, <laughs> isn't that kind of weird? Because there's this, you know, we've heard about this effort out there to sort of target some Republicans in primaries that aren't going along with the with the school scholarships, pr private school scholarships. I mean, if they get beat, does the governor think that they're going to be more likely to, to vote for that bill now that they've been... <laughs> I'd, I don't think yeah, the chances no, of passage suddenly improve. And if they survive, it's like, well, no. then, you know, why would I vote for it then? Don't, yeah, it doesn't improve either I don't, way. Yeah, I don't. Yeah. It's, it's a strange strategy. But 
I, I mean, I, I'm assuming that there are some members who are in primaries who want the time to go out and campaign. Yeah. Uh, and, and at this point are saying, yeah, don't bring us back until after the primary. There are Democrats who are in primaries too. So, I mean, it, it, it affects both parties. Um, you know, the incumbents probably want to be out there knocking on well, doors and, and kissing babies and doing and, and to that point, the other thing, and, and maybe it, it would be too late at this stage in a campaign for it to matter a whole lot anyways. Um, but as long as they're in session an, an incumbent, the sitting legislator can't uh, fundraise. Um, so, so if they need a little bit of cash to get to the finish line, if you're in office right now, you can't do that, which if you face a primary challenge, gives an, an advantage to, to that challenger who can be out there doing that. Now, like I said, it's, it, we're, we're like what you, you just said, Jim, under 25 days to the primary, depending on when you're listening to this, um, just a little more than three weeks. So I, maybe it's too late for fundraising to really make a huge difference anyways, but that is kind of an interesting, you know, tangent uh, impact. And I think this. doesn't early voting starts in like five days. Right. The 18th. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Wednesday. So, yeah. Yep. And, and a lot of these folks really aren't doing that much fundraising on their own because somebody else is you know, putting the money into their right. campaigns. Yeah. You know I mean, yeah. it's not like they're going out and asking for money. That's um, true. Can they take a transfer? Like can Jack Whitford give, or can, I guess Pat Grassley would be the better example. Can Pat Grassley give, transfer money to Lee Hine, like right now? I, I, I don't know how that works, honestly. We'll, we'll crowdsource that. Okay. <laughs> Email so, us at oniowapolitics at gmail.com. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I was just going to, I was just wondering how many of um, those Republican holdouts are retiring this year. I know at least Ross Poston in the Quad Cities yep. is retiring. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. There's yeah. there's a few of them that are in that boat. Yep. Yeah. That's a good point. And, too. And so the, the primary isn't going to change their vote either. So. Right. But meanwhile, uh, no one has ever accused Governor Kim Reynolds of being a lackluster campaigner on the campaign trail. She's about as high energy as any candidate I've, I've covered. But nothing. She's nothing but optimistic about Iowa and what she can do if voters give her a chance. Now it appears she's asking for more than a chance. She wants carte blanche. At a recent event, the governor said, we're going to keep Iowa red and make it redder than it already is. I want my own AG and a state auditor who won't sue me every time around. Todd, uh, I suppose every governor wants their team to work with. Uh, is this a case of Reynolds being overly enthusiastic or is she really asking to be free of checks and balances uh, that from other state elected officials? Um, is she unaware of the role the attorney general and state auditor play in state government? Well, you know, Iowa already has a a pretty strong governor. I mean, as far as the rules, you know, the the rules for being governor, we we tend to be rank among the stronger chief executives. But you know, not having any oversight and no one to tell you that you're doing anything wrong makes makes it a lot easier. I mean, it's you know. It's like any, at any job, like, you know, I work at home and if I just don't decide to answer the phone, I, I, I have no checks and balances. So, which is, which is nice. But, uh, I mean, I had, I never thought of that. No. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my, my phone was dead. I, sorry. I, my email was screwed up. Uh, see, these are all things you learn. This is things I learned when I worked in a, in a bureau, you know? Yeah. <laughs> out on the, on the frontier outpost you're you know you have no 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 checks and balances but uh, she i mean this is 
I mean, we know the legislature isn't, you know, isn't providing any oversight of the executive branch. I mean, you look at all the things, the misspending of, of COVID relief funding, the, you know, big problems at mental health facilities, uh, you know, just the correction system, all of these things that the, you know, and then the oversight committee would instead have a meeting where they'd, you know, call Ames school officials in to, to grill them about Black Lives Matter week or something like that. I mean, <laughs> the governor's shifting tens of millions of dollars around that she can't spend, but it's like, oh, that, you know, that's okay. That's no big deal. So now, you know, the auditor has been critical of her on on several issues. And so she probably doesn't like that. So if she got an auditor to her liking, she wouldn't have to deal with that pesky bit of oversight. And and the attorney general would then be, you know, if, if it's a Republican, would then be free to pursue all of, you know, you know, you remember when the, when Kim Reynolds said that she regretted not joining the Texas lawsuit that sought to overturn the presidential vote in like what, eight states, 10 states, something like that. She regretted that we couldn't join that lawsuit. So in the future, you know, 2024 election, if it gets stolen again, you know, we can, we can weigh in and try to throw out the votes of tens of millions of Americans. So I think, you know, she's and the and for the record, Todd, that one got laughed out of the Yeah, country, it did. Right? That was, it did. It was yeah. yeah. So I mean she won't have an auditor to, to worry about and she'll have a an attorney general who can pursue the sort of political lawsuits and actions that, that the governor supports. Well, back in twenty nineteen, Reynolds and Attorney General Tom Miller reached some sort of a compromise that limited his freedom, I guess, to file lawsuits. And, and uh, Miller had joined a number of other attorneys general in challenging former Donald Trump's policies. And um, he agreed to this compromise uh, in an effort to avoid some more restrictive legislation. Um, Aaron, this all seems a bit curious because I don't recall that Miller has sued the governor and he has declined to defend her and the legislature in some cases. And, and Democratic Auditor Rob Sand has been critical, as Todd mentioned, but he hasn't sued her. Um, and Sand has been fundraising off Reynolds' comments, uh, so I guess there's an upside in this for him. Uh, um, I, I mean, it, it. I guess, should we just chalk this up to uh, campaign rhetoric? Um, uh, well, you know, just... uh, yeah, I, I think there's basically two ways to come at this, and, 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 and I think Todd basically and you have both got at it, but, but if I could kind of wrap it up in a nice bow. Um, yeah. I, 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 when you're on the campaign side of things, when you're out at your campaign office and you're talking about the election, you're going to advocate for the candidates in your party for the state offices that are up for election. That's obviously a Democrat would do that. A Republican would do that. Um, a, a libertarian would do that. Um, I think the problem that, the governor got herself into was the way she phrased it. And, and by saying, um, like you said, that she wants Republicans in these um, offices. So, so they're not bugging her uh, anymore. And, and that does, that's a red flag statement. That's, that's absolutely fair uh, to point out, you know, that <laughs> we, it, we have checks and balances for a reason. Um, and, um, you know, she would probably argue that some of the things that the auditor's office have done have been politically motivated. But um, uh, look, Rob Sand's going to be able to come back with uh, evidence to refute that as as well, um, s- starting with have, you know, the federal government, um, you know, taking the same position as his audit on the 
the the report that looked at um, oh pandemic relief funding that she put towards uh, her staff, um, and and he has also issued audits that have um, supported her office's work, uh, most specifically on the on the reporting of uh, COVID nineteen data. His office, um, his audit revealed that uh, the state did basically nothing wrong in the way it presented um, COVID data, despite myriad complaints um, from folks throughout the, 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 you know, the, the throes of the pandemic. So um, yeah, so I, the, the, the way she phrased it is, is what's troubling. And, and, and then now you get into, you know, was that just a slip of the tongue and just a poor way to say what she meant more innocently, or is that a, you know, is that a signal that uh, she genuinely kind of wants uh, a bunch of yes men in, in, in important positions of power in state government? I think that's I, I don't pretend to know the answer to that. That's getting into someone's mind. But I, it's a it's a it's a fair question, given what she said and, and the way she framed it. In this case, she should like a couple of yes women in those offices. Uh, Brenna <laughs> Bird, a former uh, staffer for Representative Steve King. And is running for AG and former state representative Marianne Hanusa is running for auditor. Um, and maybe you're right, uh, Aaron, that this was just a poor way of framing it. But when she says, I want my attorney general, um, it is probably the sort of thing that raises red flags with some people. I'm beginning to wonder if, uh, you know, we've talked for a long time about how Kim Reynolds basically is a shoe in for reelection, but it seems like she's chipping away at her support in some ways. I mean, she's got all these sort of uh, issues out there that uh, create openings for uh, people who might not support her eminent domain, the pipeline, my attorney general, uh, her handling of COVID relief uh, and things like that. Is she just sort of building the case um, for electing a new governor? Well, I'll say something real quick here, and then if anyone else wants to jump on, I'm going to start with I, and maybe I'll look stupid in, um, let's see, 11 minus 5, six months. Um, but I don't think that it's a foregone conclusion that Kim Reynolds wins this race comfortably. Um, we are in such a highly partisan political time. Um, the days of Chuck Grassley winning with 60 and 70% of the vote in a general election are over. And remember, Kim Reynolds only won by just a hair under three percentage points um, four years ago. Now, the national mood and atmosphere may change things and may make things more, um, you know, better for her this time around. But I, I, I have gone into this race with very much of the mind that, yes, absolutely, Kim Reynolds is the favorite. But but just because of the strong partisan feelings that are out there and because of some of the things you listed, they're, they're, look, there are... There are a lot of people in the state who like a lot of very much are in Kim Reynolds' corner and love everything she's done, but there there are a lot of people who are the opposite of that. Um, and I think there's enough people in the middle um, that are are willing to listen to arguments that will be made over the next six months um, and and could be swayed in, in, in one direction or the other. So, um, uh, and yeah, and then to your point, this is, I'm sure we'll hear about this on the campaign trail, and this is the kind of thing that uh, maybe a, a middle of the road voter doesn't like hearing, hearing a governor um, just saying um, that she wants um, a bunch of, you know, 
yes, men and women, <laughs> uh, to your point, Jim, um, in office beneath her. I mean, that's kind of what we had with the previous presidential administration. And, 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 a, and a lot of voters uh, spoke um, in, in 2020 about what they felt about that. So, so, so yeah, I, I think this is the kind of thing that uh, can hurt her resume. Yeah. her. It seems like her Achilles heel is her divisiveness. I mean, she doesn't, she doesn't even make, you know, an attempt for show to, you know, draw any votes from the other side or draw from a, a larger political coalition. She basically is, you know, campaigning as I've got my base there with me. I don't need anybody else. And in fact, not only do I not need you, I'm going to do everything I can to alienate everybody, everybody else who doesn't support me. So I, I guess, you know, that's the strategy she wants to pursue. There's, you know, I, I suppose they, they feel like Iowa has turned red enough that that's the kind of campaign they can run. They can, you know, they can run as like, you know, DeSantis or Abbott or these other governors. Well, if they do, we'll talk about it on a future edition of On Iowa Politics, but that's it for today. Uh, I hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you do, tell your friends and subscribe to us wherever you find your podcast. Fan mail may be sent to podcast at thegazette.com. Stay up to date on the Iowa legislature uh, as long as it's in session by subscribing to the Capital Digest newsletter under the Iowa legislature tab at thegazette.com. And don't forget that the work of everyone you heard here today can be found on the pages and websites of the Quad City Times, Waterloo City Falls Courier, Sioux City Journal, Mason City Globe Gazette, Muscatine Journal, Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil, and the Cedar Rapids Gazette. William Elliott Whitmore will take us out. If you know an Iowa band or musician who should be on the podcast, send us a sound file and subscribe to On Iowa Politics. For Aaron, Todd, Sarah, Jared, and our producer, Stephen, I'm James Lynch. Thanks for listening. Be well. Saturday night bonanzas are known from here to Kansas as being the thing to do. We like to pass around that shine, get everybody feeling fine, drinking that good old South Lee County brew. Oh, put it to your lips and take a little nip. Oh, you know your bell is rung when you can't feel your tongue and all you did was take a little sip. Oh, tip back the jar. So good so far and we'll drink until we don't know what to do. Oh, we'll hoop and we'll holler and we'll take another swallow of that good old South Lee County brew. Another batch will be done soon and we'll be howling at the moment. What tomorrow brings, I haven't got a clue. All I know is tonight I'll be feeling all right with my bottle of South Lee County brew. Oh, put it to your lips and take a little nip. Know your bell is wrong when you can't feel your tongue, and all you did was take a little sip. Oh, tip back the jar. So good, so far. And-
mother swallow that good old South Lee County brew. Some folks say that the jar's half empty. Some folks say that the jar's half full. And some folks like me don't give a damn as long as I get another pull. Oh, tip back the jar. So good so far, and we'll drink until we don't know what to do. Oh, we'll hoop and we'll holler. We'll take another swallow of that good old South Lee County brew. Oh, we'll dance a little jig and we'll take another swig of that good old South Lee County brew. Get a daily update from the Gazette with our daily news podcast. Add it to your podcast player or your Alexa-friendly device to get a bite-sized local news update each day. Check it out at thegazette.com slash podcasts.